So hello and welcome to our uh, Liverpool University Centre for Innovation in Education podcast at our Treasure Island Pedagogy series. I'm Tundi Vargaskin, one of the senior educational developers here, and we've got four lovely guests here today who I think two of you know each other and two of you don't. And it's a special edition with educational developers. And it's the first time we have branched out internationally, which is fantastic. So here in Liverpool, it's the morning and in Australia and New Zealand, it's the evening at the moment. The idea behind Treasure Island Pedagogies is that since the pandemic, we have had a lot of conversations around teaching and learning, how we might organise our teaching so that we spend precious contact time with students, which is what we call our Treasure Islands and what that might look like. So really, um, this is the conversation we wanted to have with you all. And also to just mention that in, I don't know if um, you're familiar with the Desert Island, this series in uh, BBC Radio 4 in the UK, this is a programme and people are asked to bring eight discs with them to their, to their deserted islands and what sustained them. But here today, we will talk about your light bulb moments with students or with staff and then also your treasure island pedagogies or or any props teaching props you would like to bring to your treasure islands and of course we all need to relax because this has been relentless so we will also ask you to identify a luxury item and, and barter uh, with each other at the end so can i call on on you first of all and just briefly can you say perhaps what your original subject or dis discipline was, what your current role is and how did you become um, working in this current role, just very briefly. Can I call on Ashwini first, please? Uh, good evening. Yes, um, so I'm uh, based at the University of Auckland. I trained as a scientist, so I did my Bachelor of Science and then taught um, secondary school science before I forayed into educational technologies. And then that kind of developed my interest more in um, teaching and learning and pedagogy, basically. So more around, you know, the process of teaching and learning. And then um, I became an academic um, in tertiary education. And and I have taught in higher education and now I have um, I have a role that's titled Curriculum Development Manager. So these, this is a totally new role uh, because our centre got restructured, um, disestablished basically after restructure and then our institution is now focusing more on curriculum development. So I have moved from my role as an educational developer, educational technologies and academic in higher education into with um, into a focus that's more on curriculum design and development. So that's that's a bit of my journey. Great, thanks Ashwini. And uh, as we can tell, it's never a straight path, isn't it? It's a lovely rich journey to, to become where, where we are now. Okay, thank you, Danielle. Hi, I'm Danielle Hinton. I'm an educational developer at the University of Birmingham in our higher education. Futures Institute and I came to this role in a very interesting way. I qualified back in Perth, Western Australia as a librarian. I thought I like books, what better degree to do? And then I found out mm, it wasn't the most exciting uh, career for myself and came to the UK then sort of fell into sort of e-learning development in the early days back sort of 20 years ago and then really found my passion found the thing i really wanted to do and i just love 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 teaching 
Great, thank you, Danielle. That's another lovely story. Thank you. Jenny? Uh, yeah, I'm Jenny Carr. I'm a senior academic developer at the Eden Centre for Education Enhancement at LSE, London School of Economics. Um, I originally started my teaching journey in further education and uh, community and adult education as well. Um, I took some time out to do a PhD, the focus of which was um, education policy around further education but obviously whilst I was doing my PhD I did some teaching and that's when I started teaching in higher education. Actually how I got from that to doing academic development, um, yeah that's a very long story and I'm not even really sure that I know how that happened but it was via the HEA then a redundancy so actually um, this is the first time I've done an academic development role within an institution at LSE. Great, thank you Jenny. Yeah, Natasha? Okay, so I'm Natasha Taylor and I'm uh, currently working as an educational development um, officer, I think, at um, RMIT University. Like many of us, I think our job titles change with every restructure and <laughs> reinvention of what we're doing. Um, my home discipline is law and uh, criminology latterly, my PhD was in criminology. And so my career really started as a lecturer at um, uh, a big research intensive university in the UK, University of Sheffield, and I was very happy and successful there. But teaching and learning was my passion. And as Jenny said, we, you know, we worked together at the HEA and this was the turning point for me. I had an opportunity to go and work there and did amazing um, and fun things for four years at a national level. And then stepped back again, redundancies loomed um, into the sector where I worked at Sheffield Hallam um, for a while and then had the opportunity to come to Australia. So here I am three years later working in RMIT, which is a monstrously big university. It's absolutely huge. And I'm in STEM. So for the last three years, I've been learning everything STEM. Wow, fascinating. And and I think what, what seems to be the common between the four of you is that whatever your job title is, uh, your passion is just shines through around learning teaching, which is which is how it should be. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you. So light bulb moments. Can we talk about your light bulb moments? And I know because obviously when when I ask this question of of, of lecturers, um, you know, they usually talk about light bulb moments with students. As as in your work, you might do some teaching or you might do some teaching with staff. So I'm I'm completely leave it to you whether you want to reflect back to your whatever point. Um, just can you talk about a light bulb moment with your students or with colleagues? when you felt they were getting it and how and, and talk a little bit about how that moment came together for you. So I had to reflect long and hard about this question about light bulb moment. You know, there's so many things that swirl around in your head. But then I came back to something that I discuss a lot with our staff participants on our PGCHE and it's around um, staff being students and I do emphasize this quite a lot because I really believe the richness of this student experience, discussing pedagogies, you know, exploring cross-disciplinary um, nature of teaching um, can really, it's a real golden thread that can then bring, be brought through to their own students. 
So I really tried to emphasize that and you can really see that come out when they're doing their discussions, when they're doing their assignments. And it's really great to see that creeping through into their own course design and facilitation. I, I recently did a short course and that was putting me in the position of student and um, it just reminded me, I agree with everything you said Daniela, it reminded me uh, how important it is to be a student <laughs> and remind yourself what it's like and what the issues are and what that experience and what's important. So I, I really kind of echo what you said. And I, I think that's where the pandemic has been grand because we've been able to share the online student experience with our staff that they might never have had. And I think that will definitely open up um, greater opportunities for their own students. And there was, I mean, I have to agree, and there was that aspect of baptism by fire because um, all those years that we were, I mean, especially in my role, I was trying to um, advocate for um, online learning, more blended learning, so kind of adoption of technology for, you know, better teaching and learning experiences, so well thought through experiences. But um, there, there were situations where, you know, it could get frustrating, there was reluctance, but then when the pandemic happened, I mean, I I just felt like, oh my goodness, all those years of work has finally come to fruition because everybody realized the penny dropped and people realized, well, actually technologies can be leveraged in good ways, you know. Um, and so, yeah. And one of the, um, talking about those um, light bulb moments, I remember when we are in a situation especially teaching in higher education. So I was contributing to PG Cert and I was coordinating a an awfully online paper. And we were talking about assessment and these things can be quite dry. So what I did was I basically asked everybody to clear their desks and I gave them a Friday quiz because we used to have our seminars on uh, Fridays, 1 to 4 p.m. And, you know, towards the end of the seminar, people get quite tired and I was tasked with teaching about assessment and good assessment. And I I thought the best way to do this is to make it funny. So I gave them a Friday quiz and it was quite surprising. People got so competitive and I didn't really give them good instructions because my point was to illustrate good assessment requires good instructions and you've got to make your expectations clear and then of course the way you design the assessment it has to have you know meaning for people who are doing it so I gave them a task where it was totally meaningless as in they had to come up with a way to plant um, 12 trees in a symmetrical order and then um, there was this question of how you do it. And one, one of them came up with a really shortcut answer saying with a spade. And I couldn't say that that was incorrect. So that was a, that started a really interesting discussion among everybody around. So assessment, you know, the design of assessment needs a bit more consideration than just creating something that's the easiest to moderate and mark. That sounds great, Ashwini. And also just this idea of modeling or, or you know, using a teaching something with actually getting people to do it. I, I think that's a nice, yes. We had a, a similar exercise we used to get people to do uh, in the new to teaching workshops we used to run. I mean, there's a couple, but one um, was, you know, design a series of lectures and seminars and that will teach somebody how to tell the time. And, you know, so it was a really simple activity, but in a similar way, Ashwini, as you had somebody say, oh, a spade, 
one group actually then came up with, um, well, I'll just go and sit in the classroom and if all the students turn up on time, I'll just credit prior experience, prior learning and that way they get the credit. But the other one is the famous uh, biscuit exercise, which I think probably most people do when you get um, or have seen done a plate of biscuits and and people have to write a set, of, a set of assessment criteria as to how you would assess the plate of biscuits, which I, I, I did once in China for an innovative pedagogy workshop in China. And that was incredibly um, interesting was the different way they approached the notion of how you assess a biscuit. It gets quite, I mean, it's quite surprising how much like students we are in those kinds of scenarios. So even though we have our colleagues, I found that some of them got really competitive. So they actually wanted to do really well. And, um, you know, all the typical examples, like I think Danielle talked about um, staff being in student shoes. So having that that kind of reflection and that kind of experience sometimes really, um, ha uh, you know, introduces those light bulb moments for us as well, because then we do realize what our students experience when we design kind of a particular learning experience for them. I think maybe the point you make there about becoming competitive, and I think one thing that perhaps the people we work with take away from that experience might be because they really they become competitive so they want to know what is the right answer yeah and so what yes but what's the right answer so, well no there isn't one right answer and then you feel that rebellion sort of flooding back towards you and I think that gives them a really valuable experience of what it feels like to be a student um, in that sort of situation and of course our job it, it particularly in relation to the online pivot and, and became very focused then on having to do a certain amount of, well, yeah, this is the way it's done. Otherwise, we'd have never got past that initial move, which I think for many of us, though, to sort of say, oh, here's, here's the way it's done is probably not our normal method of working and we'd like to have much more discussion around it. But, you know, just from the, the sake of students coming back, We've got how we've got to do some teaching and learning. This has got to happen in this particular order, otherwise the whole thing will just fall apart. So I think it was valuable experience for our academic colleagues, but also for us, perhaps as education academic developers, that we had to move away from what is possibly not, you know, our normal way of, of teaching ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's really, yeah, that's really a good observation, Jenny. And then just one, one aspect I wanted to come back to, Danielle, you were talking about disciplinarity and interdisciplinarity and bringing that in to the discussions. And because one of, one of this idea of the Treasure Island pedagogies is to get different disciplinary perspectives together. And uh, is this something that um, I, I'm just interested in if, if this is something that you're also using in your work or, or you know, just if you can maybe talk around that of how that might come across in your, you know, you obviously all work with different disciplines and, and not to show you were talking about now having to swap uh, disciplines as well in a sense. Um, yeah, so I'm just interested if you can talk about that a little bit. I think we probably all experience this of having um, our cohorts being from across disciplines, from across our universities. Um, and I've noticed that all of our team are more social science humanities uh, backgrounds and we've actually had to make that leap into the STEM disciplines and 
really explore how we're going to support and engage our colleagues. Um, and I think that's where um, it really comes to the fore of getting into their mindset, actually seeing how does, for instance, engineering conceptualize reflection. So how can we make those connections with colleagues that reflect all of the time, but they don't call it reflection or they don't think of um, knowledge in the same way as somebody from a social sciences. And obviously teaching is very social sciencey and it's all about people. It's not about a bit piece of steel um, slotting into another piece of steel. And it's actually, I think that can be a even bigger light bulb moment when you have somebody from computer science who initially was, oh, I don't want to do this PG cert. You know, this is the last thing I want to spend my time on. Really come up to you at the end going, wow, you know, I really love teaching. I can really see the importance of, you know, engaging with this wooliness to actually provide successful opportunities for my own students. So what makes that happen? What makes that light bulb moment happen for you or for your students? I mean, for me, it was relationships and putting myself in theirs, their shoes. I think the relationships are crucial, but I also think there's um, it's really important for us in our in our roles to be very confident in what we do um, and to trust the science and to be able to you know, stand up in front of a mixed group of people and confidently say, okay, this is going to be new to you, this is new epistemologies, this is new methodologies. We all have to leave our baggage outside the door and actually, you know, just invest an hour in this and, and I promise you'll come out of it alive and hopefully inspired. Um, but I, th I think that's it, but it, I think people often underestimate the skill that's involved in that, in delivering that kind of work and it doesn't always work and we do. It made me smile when Jenny referred to um, rebellion and battlegrounds and I'm sure we've all got hundreds of stories of, you know, working with really difficult um, colleagues who, you know, we've had to really persuade and um, inspire in different ways so I think um, I think that's an interesting perspective to bring. That's that's really true I have to agree because especially in educational technologies I mean the the premise I start my sessions with is to um, encourage um, colleagues to be experimental and I think that's where you know I'd, I'd say I have the opposite uh, situation to Danielle that I've come from the sciences and for me personally to make the transition to social sciences it was quite a big journey and I felt there were things that I just wasn't warming up to because in science you were very used to hard and fast ways of doing things and very formulaic and you know um, when you move to social sciences it's a bit more considered and there's more openness I think and there is more unknown so I felt once I got comfortable with that and I was able to like you say um, Natasha you know confidence is really really important but it takes a while to kind of assert yourself in that area 
and there is so much expectations in our kind of roles, um, you know, that, you know, people always expect that we'll do things perfectly. But I try and encourage and say to them, look, we are all learning together because everything around educational technology can be quite experimental. And I say the same thing around, you know, what we do in those situations where we have our own colleagues as students. I say to my own colleagues saying, when you go into your teaching scenario, if you're transparent with your students that you are experimenting with maybe a new tool or a new particular strategy, then they are more open rather than, you know, more critical of when um, things don't go right. And very often we learn more from our failures than, you know, being really successful at something. Great. That, that's fascinating. So I've got now in the picture of, of educational developers in really confident on the battleground or on this passion of trying to get people on board with education and and you know spreading the good words so let's move on to talk about treasure island pedagogies and teaching props so in your work now setting out perhaps teaching on pg cert or whatever program you might be involved with what is that teaching prop or pedagogy that you would want to preserve or want to have with you on the treasure islands with your students I, I really struggled with this. Okay, <laughs> that's good, that's good. With the, teaching, let's teaching, talk about the struggles. <laughs> Prop-based learning, I've invented a new pedagogy. Um, <laughs> my prop, which I absolutely could not do without, and I've really struggled this year without, is the good old-fashioned flip chart and coloured pens. Um, especially, you know, when you're walking into a session, if it's either students or staff, and you want them to have a really good discussion about a topic or, or a concept or whatever, giving them that piece of flip chart, giving them the pens and then an activity where they have to draw is just the most effective way of getting deep, meaningful discussion, I think. You get past the, oh, I can't draws, and then before they know it, they're really, uh, you know, sort of engrossed in what they're doing and what they're talking about. And it is by far the best way of getting really good deep discussion out of small groups four or five people and then sharing it across the, the class at all and i don't know about anyone else but i just can't get electronic whiteboards or padlets or anything else to work in the same way there's something about that physical pens space being around the table no i agree natasha and something that i just had to bring with me to my treasure island was a really big bag of lego so in this in the same notion it was it's something about the physicality of this tool then obviously matched with a facilitation technique in this case lego serious play just sort of gives you and your students or participants really that permission to explore that permission to play that permission to really think outside the box which obviously as you've indicated isn't pleasant for some people for some people you know asking them to draw a mouse or to build something in lego is just really the last thing they ever want to do but for the majority of people it can be really a liberating process and I think both those techniques work really well with looking at identity um, as a teacher, you know, all of those different um, kinds of elements. Well, I'll, I'll take your flip chart paper and your Lego and throw in um, glitter pens, Play-Doh, 
uh, what I'm missing more than anything working at home and and not being in a physical space is that I have a, a huge craft cupboard in my office that contains colored paper, tissue paper, pens, crayons. Crayons are really important, getting people to use a crayon instead of a proper pen. So, but Why I want to take- Danny, can you elaborate on that? I don't know, there's just something very different. I, I think because one of the things Natasha said about people being outside their comfort zone, being asked to draw something. And that's because we have this thing, oh, we've got to draw it properly or draw it nice. If you take the pen or the pencil away and give them a crayon, yeah, then nobody, well, very few people can draw well with a crayon. So you're straight away taking down the bar. But I think bringing together what Natasha and Danielle said there is previously Natasha was talking about having the confidence to be in that space and to promote what we do. And I, I, I think you do have to, to walk into that space and say, hey, we're going to do a collage that will, rep, you know, whatever it may be. And I have found that although people might end up being slightly out of their comfort zone, that actually they really like being taken on that journey. But you have to enter that space being positive, being, uh, you know, confident in what you're doing. Um, Natasha and I have actually led all kinds of workshops like this on occasions and got people to, you know, to read poetry and reflect on their practice through poetry. Um, we used to have a little saying that, OK, well, nobody cried. And then people did start crying in our workshop. So we went, had to retreat to, oh, well, nobody died, you know, and, and luckily we stayed at that. But um yeah, so it's having the confidence. And of course, you only get that confidence if you actually believe it yourself. You know, and I think that's what Danielle was saying there, exploring your identity. You know, it, unless you've thought through the reason you're doing this, that you're not just doing it because it seems trendy or different or, or you know, shock value or something, but you believe in the value of it. And that comes from your identity as an educator. Um, then I think you can take the room with you. Uh, sometimes you have to be a bit... Uh, what was it, Natasha? Risky brashness. We decided was one of our one of our. Um... I love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it can be done, and I think it's and I I believe in its value. And that's yeah, that's really um, those are really interesting examples, and I can really see um, that our disciplinary kind of. Um, backgrounds have a huge influence in how we kind of you know exert our own presence in those situations so I always go back to my kind of scientific training to um, harness that confidence or try to bring it back in you know because I feel that's my familiar territory so in, once in my um, seminar um, I was talking about inquiry-based learning and I thought what would be a great way to explore this and it's again afternoon teaching so I got a dunk bird and then I put it on the table and started you know um, the whole process of it um, dipping into that um, glass of water and um, people got really fascinated and then I said well that's what inquiry based learning is all about because you see something you observe something and then or you are triggered to think about something and you are so intrigued that you want to know more so you know to enthuse our students and to engage them in inquiry based learning that could be but I must say there were some people who did 
didn't quite warm up to the idea. They thought it was, you know, oh, what is this thing? Why are you using a prop? You could have just told us what inquiry-based learning is. So you do encounter those um, different audiences. And I think that's why I was saying, you know, the confidence that and the expectation on our role is so huge. Sometimes it's more about adapting ourselves to suit to the audience, you know, um, their expectations. So I find it still tricky in this role. And I think it's really key also to think back to when we were starting out with these weird pedagogies. So I remember how really challenging it was to me when a colleague said, let's do problem-based learning. So I was, I was sitting there observing him and going, okay, he, he said this phrase, I'll write this phrase down. And it was it was about building my confidence up in what this, you know, pedagogy that was giving all this teaching power away to the students and I you know it became something that I obviously became very passionate about and I think all of us here have sort of embraced that and definitely the us building the confidence and showing the confidence to our students is key. Yeah so that that's what comes across to me as well as you're speaking that I mean it was slightly unfair to ask you to nominate one pedagogy when your job is exactly to to um, offer a smorgasbord of pedagogies to participants but but it's as you're talking you know the the words that you're using is, is setting up that emotional space or the the trusted space where you you know you are confident and you're taking people on a journey so almost like creating that environment is more important than what, what happens in it anyway so the other question i wanted to ask because you you all um mentioned quite you know physical props so has the pandemic and the way you had to shift your teaching been how has it been then um i've i've enjoyed the pandemic it's a really weird thing to say um and as much as i like the physicality of lego and being in the classroom um i also have come from sort of 15 16 years of being an instructional designer and supporting um, online learning, designing online learning, um, online inquiry-based learning. So actually I thought, wow, this is a great opportunity to to really distill all of the stuff that I've had, you know, passion about all these years and nobody really listened. So I think, you know, I could put it all together and indoctrinate all my colleagues. What about you, Jenny or Natasha? Uh, well, <laughs> this year, for the first time, I presented a new module on RPG Cert HE, which was um, creative pedagogies for the social sciences. And you're sort of like, OK, yeah, no, this sounded like a good idea at the time. Um, uh, and the centrepiece, obviously, a lot of it was going to be online anyway, because that's, you know, the way we run it. But we there was going to be one compulsory all day workshop where I got people to do um, a lot of physical creativity um, and obviously that went out of the window um, but I think it's been valuable for me to think about well okay you love being in the room you love and you think it's valuable and you think people enjoy that but also how much of this does need to be done synchronously and how much can we do asynchronously so I have become um the Moodle expert that I would never have claimed to be before. Um, you know, I, I'm quite 
good with technology. I should say I spent 14 years at the Open University, so that's been a bonus in terms of uh, teaching in this kind of environment. But I did have to think about, you know, how do I set up asynchronous activities, which can then encourage people to um, write poetry, to um, think about object-based learning and, you know, to create a lesson around object-based learning. How do you think about simulations when you've got nobody else to do a simulation with? So I think that's been really valuable. I think it's been successful. Um, yeah, I hope it's been successful. It's certainly been a popular module and we'll see um, when they complete their assignment at the end of it, whether that's actually worked but yeah that's certainly been one of the challenges uh, during this period um, and a learning a learning curve for me which is always valuable i think i i've struggled and so I, I, much of the stuff i've done in the last year has been much more focused on um sharing teaching stories and do and i guess that's in creative ways so we too have been doing some podcasts and some stuff like that but listening to Jenny talk and thinking about some of the staff I've been working with um, and how they've adapted their more creative um, pedagogies to, to remote. And so, you know, we have some students building bridges out of matchsticks and then they made a huge class video, which then we popped around on YouTube and things. But other staff have had uh, build a glider and throw it in your backyard and film it type experiments and things like that and taste testing we've got food science in us in our college so um some people doing some great work to try to give students those experiences remotely but also come together as a learning community and share what they've done because that that pride i think has to be there um for them to feel connected so that's been lovely to see um yeah it's been really good mm -hmm. so that's you you bring in another um concept of connectivity because that's something that people have talked about a lot um, so can I ask you then as well in terms of what you have noticed on colleagues and staff or or even in in your practice but what has helped to create this connectedness during the pandemic I think we've touched on it I think it's that's that it was that sense of emergency and that we're all in it together and I think that's what's driven the work certainly within the community that I'm involved in it's everyone wanting to help each other out and to share in a way that they've never done before and that's been um, really great to see and technology has facilitated that actually. Yeah that's that's true um, uh, how people have leveraged um, networks to kind of quickly upskill and develop their capacity to use um, different strategies, different techniques and sometimes different platforms. I mean, everybody, you know, um, is talking about Zoom as it, it's synonymous with kind of online learning. So um, one thing I've noticed in terms of connectivity, I think, I mean, reflecting on my own experience as a student, um, uh, you know, undergrad student and then postgrad, I feel my experience was quite distinct in that, you know, online learning was really advantageous, I felt, because I felt that sense of connection rather than being that one student in a class of 800 in an undergrad science course, um, where, you know, you really didn't have time to connect. So I have noticed among colleagues, as well when they are teaching now uh, for example using zoom or any other um, synchronous kind of tool 
they do reflect and they do realize, you know, um, having that variable um, taken away as in, you know, comparing the face-to-face -face versus online experiences. Now out of um, necessity, people have adopted remote learning, remote teaching. They have taken that variable away has been really useful because now people can constructively think about, so how can I leverage, you know, technology for remote teaching um, rather than comparing it to an experience that I was so used to. So I felt that that actually, um, um, that reflection has encouraged teachers to reach out and connect with students in more ways than before, um, especially around the social presence. Um, and, you know, um, my colleagues have been so creative in the way that they have been um, facilitating learning online. So it's not just around, you know, cognition, what students are picking up and how they are performing in the assessment. It's more about how you would create that community so everybody feels connected and it's not lonely or doesn't feel isolated because, you know, suddenly there is no kind of campus environment and the vibe's not there. I mean, so, slightly segueing from that, I think Twitter for me has been just a wonderful boon professionally because I it's become a community for me so as much as I would like to be back with my immediate colleagues I feel like I've got a whole worldwide network of colleagues that you know can inspire we can exp inspire each other keep each you know other going through all of this so that's definitely been a key one for me. I'd love to talk to you, Danielle, because my PhD research is focused on how networks help people develop capacity for teaching with technologies. And you are, I think, a really great example of how, you know, in the pandemic, people have taken to Twitter and other um, kind of platforms to be able to share experiences and quickly learn, um, you know, on the go. Excellent. So one, one matchmaking already made in the conversation. <laughs> Brilliant. We love this. Okay, so the I'm gonna ask you now to start thinking about your luxury items. So, I mean, obviously this, I think it's almost a year for, for us in the UK. I don't know, obviously in Australia, New Zealand, you might have different timelines, but you know, this has been a long haul. Yes, similarly. So, um, I don't know if you're working, I mean, obviously your working practices will have changed to some extent, but you, we also need to relax and that might be slightly more difficult at the moment because the boundaries have, have, have blurred and so would be interested in what would be your luxury item to take to your treasure island to that little corner when you can be on your own and relax off duty? For me and, and I suppose yeah um, is this is this allowed? I don't know how strict your rules are you see around. around go on this. go on. <laughs> <laughs> so it has to be unlimited access to an online music streaming service. So for me, music is everything. It's my relaxation. It's my focus. So if I'm working, I do use music to focus. But at the same time, I use it to relax. I realise I'm very fortunate. I don't live in London. I live in the countryside, um, very beautiful area. And my way of relaxing is to um, do a commute. In other words, I stop work, go outside, go for a walk and pretend I'm commuting from London to Oxford and and listen to music while I'm doing so. So, yeah, that would be my luxury item. You can cut off the television and whatever if you like, but please leave me my music streaming. 
<laughs> so that has been precedence, Jenny. So you you are granted this. Uh, also, because in our Treasure Islands, we do have to have Wi-Fi because when we're teaching students online, we do need Wi-Fi. So um, that's that definitely the case. OK, so that's you definitely granted that, Jenny. OK, well, I'm going to take um, and this is going to appear slightly strange, a drone with a camera and, the, and whatever kit you need. I'm obviously going to have to have training for my relaxation. <laughs> but I was really inspired this week by a couple of videos. There have been a few actually recently of um, drone footage, but there was one in particular and I'll, I'll send you the link. It's um, it was called um, the Tree of Life or something. And it's an Australian uh, video and the tea tree oil is sort of seeping out into a, a, a creek or a lake or something. It makes beautiful patterns. And I thought if you were stuck on the Treasure Island, um, it'd be a bit like being stuck in lockdown and you can't go anywhere other than your next park every day. And it all became a bit mundane. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to throw that drone up and look down and see how the landscape's different and how it changes with the seasons and all that? So that's that's what I'm taking a drone. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. I mean, I, I do actually listen on, on YouTube when I listen to music. I like to listen to those when it comes with the footage, with the drones and the nature. And it's lovely. Yeah, you're definitely allowed that, Natasha. <laughs> Danielle or Ashwini? Um, so I was wondering whether I could have three items to be really, really super greedy. Um, so I was thinking that I definitely needed to bring the most expensive pillow that money could buy. Um, because I've spent 20 years commuting, so I thought I need a bit of re proper relaxation in my lockdown Treasure Island. Um, but then I needed two books because being an ex-librarian, you know, books are still important. So. I wanted to bring a Bible with me because my faith is important to my identity and my father is in the last stage of Parkinson's and I really want to connect with him so I can't talk to him anymore. So I really want to read his PhD thesis which is on conceptual change in uh, secondary chemistry and the use of analogies. Now I'm not in any way a STEM person but you know, I've been really inspired pedagogically by, you know, thinking about how we can um, support our learners through threshold concepts. So I'd really like to trawl through his PhD. Oh, that's lovely. I mean, how could we not allow you to have those things? So, yeah, that's lovely. Yeah. And this is my bias, Danielle. Um, so I, you know, chemistry was my favorite, favorite subject when I did my BSc. And it's such a lovely subject to be teaching and, you know, um, to encourage students to try um, and make sense of the conceptual stuff. Like what you're saying your dad's PhD was about. That's so fascinating in itself. I think it'll make really interesting reading. So, Chundi, when you um, uh, did prompt us, you know, with this luxury item question, I went really old school and I, you know, I think because I'm, I'm passionate about plants and planting and, you know, gardening and things. And one thing I noticed when I moved, you know, left everything from my home country and moved to New Zealand, I did feel I was missing that. So um, I think gardening and being around, you know, um, uh, greenery is kind of, 
really a luxurious to me. I feel that's a luxury thing. So, and the one thing I chose that I would take to the island, because I, I think I went too far with the metaphor and I thought I'm going to take a coconut <laughs> because, you know, coconut has a special place in my life. I mean, the palm trees back home and then now kind of, you know, coconut is so versatile. So you can use it in multiple ways. You can even grow it into a tree itself that can, you know, supply you for ages. You know, that analogy around, I think there's the metaphor around teaching men to fish and they can, you know, fish for life and whatnot. So coconut to me is, would be a real luxury. So I wouldn't be going high tech at all. In fact, I noticed that in my downtime, I try and run away from technology because in my day, day life, like, you know, in my actual work life, I use technology so much. So my downtime is very much, you know, planting, like, you know, indoor plants, attending to the garden. And so, yeah, I thought, well, what a versatile thing I could take that that's, you know, coconut. Um, you could use it in multiple ways. People can get creative with it. You could do craft with it, you know, if you wanted, or even drink it if you were feeling like on the deserted island, you had nothing to actually feed yourself with. Love it. Love it, Dashwini. That's a lovely idea. It sustains you in all ways in all manners and I think uh, in the podcast people won't see you but you're surrounded by lovely plants as well so which is nice nice insight to your uh, talents of work thank you so that that's that's been lovely to share your treasure islands and and your stories and just my last question would be about bartering so obviously we are lucky enough that we all have our treasure islands and we can make connections. And I think you've already bartered during the podcast because I think, Jenny, you were taking Lego from Danielle. And, but is there anything from your discussions that you want to barter with each other? I think it's possibly. I mean, I don't know why academic developers, education developers are so good at networking or what, what kind. I think you could do some kind of research into the innate um, underpinning personalities of that. So I think probably we'll, we'll, we'll barter throughout the rest of the time um, because we do borrow, we do take from each other and, and very generously I think anyway that that people share so yeah I I don't think I'd want to do a one-off barter at this moment I will hold you all to ransom for the rest of your working lives is, is basically the way it goes isn't it <laughs> that's so true Jenny I can I think you're getting lots of nods as well from the others <laughs> and I guess with, between Natasha and you you've been bartering for years now or as in you've work together and yeah and yeah we have no idea who owns what anymore <laughs> <laughs> and throughout the pandemic we've been doing a mini research project where we've been writing to each other um proper writing in letters and to two other academic developers as well so so yeah watch this space we've got one brilliant yeah that's lovely accepted. okay yeah, and anything else but uh, otherwise I I mean thank you so much for sharing um, and creating this lovely treasure island. I think that I've taken so much that creating that confidence space. The I can't remember what did you say, brashen with risky brashness. Risky brashness, and you know, I've I've felt that like I was in your room with you, and and you've you've taken me to some really good learning experiences um, with with all this. So thank you so much for joining on this journey and. I think the other thing I just wanted to highlight for our listeners is 
that we will do a tweet chat. So, so Daniel, you mentioned Twitter and how in this important this has been to keep our community. And we hope to do a tweet chat on, on this Treasure Island pedagogy is the format that we've gone through today on the 5th of May. And at some point I might come back to you as, as well on this. But thank you so much for listening and um, over and out now. I don't know, or what, but can you help me with um, New Zealand and Australian goodbyes? Oh, well, Kia ora. I, is it Kia ora? Kia ora is the hello, but um, I think in the evening we say Po Marie, which is kind of good evening. Okay, thank you. Bye.